Well, my, oh my, we're in 2015. I was telling somebody the other day, I was thinking, man, as a kid, you know, you thought 2000 was a long time ago, you know, it's like, man, cars will be flying by then and stuff, you know? And now we're like uh, 15 years into that. Um, we'll see what happens. But as we uh, start off a new year, we start off in a new book of the Bible. Um, but it's not so much of a, of a book it's, as it is a letter. And it's not so much of a, a letter as it is a postcard, sort of. I'm referring to Second John. If you would make your way over to Second John, it really is not a postcard. It's just a one-chapter letter. It is a letter, but it is considered a book of the Bible. Now, most of the books of the Bible are fairly lengthy, and they were divided up later on, not when they were written, but later on they were divided up into chapters and verses so, so that we can find our way through. With the exception of Obadiah in the OT, and Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John and Jude of the New Testament. These are one chapter kind of letters that are just divided into verses. So when you come to a one letter or one chapter book of the Bible, you don't say chapter 1, you just go 2nd John verse whatever. It's one chapter. And so most of these ancient writings were were written on scrolls and then they were rolled up. And um, these short letters were probably just folded up and put in the back pocket. And so it's a miracle that we have them today because can you imagine the guy that received this letter or said, here, take this letter. He just folds it up, puts it in the back pocket, puts it by his nightstand and his wife throws a paper away and it's like, we, we don't have the letter. So it's a miracle that we have these short little verse or these short little letters in, in the Word of God. But um, anyways, be that as it may, we are in Second John. Let's read the whole chapter this morning. We'll cover the first six verses. And so, verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady... Not that, not as though I write a new commandment to you, but that which we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose these things 
we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever trans- transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that your joy, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Going back to verse 1 as we begin here, it starts off by saying the elder. The introduction is the elder, just, just the elder. <laughs> as I've shared with you in the past, the word elder in the Greek is the word presbyteros where we get the word presbyter or overseer. We get the word Presbyterian from that. But an elder, an elder refers to a man who has been called to a a rank or an office within the church in that sense. Whereas the overseer refers to the function of that office or rank, as I shared with you a couple weeks ago on that. But the word elder also refers to one who is advanced in, in life, one who is advanced in years, an elder, a senior, if you will. And the Apostle John was both of these. He, was, he, he held the office as an elder, as an overseer of the church. We know that in the beginning he was one of the leaders and one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem, when the church started, and more than likely at this time, he has been and is the elder in in the church of Ephesus, in that region. But we also know that uh, that he's pretty old, <laughs> as we'll we'll see in a little bit. But the 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 the, the amplified Bible puts this introduction. He put it puts it this way: the elderly elder. And then he goes on. The elderly elder. All of John's writings that he writes, because he, write, he wrote the Gospel of John, and then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. All those writings take place between 85 A.D. and 95 A.D. The Gospel of John was probably written from 85 A.D. to 90 A.D., somewhere in between there. Whereas this, these letters here were probably probably written in uh, between 90 and 95 A.D. We know that Revelation was written in 95 A.D. right before he died in that sense. Jesus came on the scene when he was 30 years old. When Jesus was 30 years old. That's when he, he started his public ministry. And it is believed that most, if not all, of his disciples were probably in their late teens to early 20s. I think oftentimes we have a picture of the disciples as older, but more than likely they were younger than Jesus. Most, 
most rabbis didn't have older disciples. They had younger disciples that they were training up and mentoring. And so more than likely, his disciples were in their late teens, early 20s. If that is the case, if we just kind of speculate and think and put John at age 20 when he started walking with Jesus, more than likely at the time of his writing right now, he is somewhere about 80 to 85 years old. That's pretty old in them days. And so he is an elderly elder (laughs) in that sense, for sure. Although most of the OG apostles, the original apostles, were referred by others as the elders. Kind of a a sign of respect. You were there. You saw him. You were an eyewitness. And so oftentimes a lot of those um, apostles that were with them, his disciples, were called the elders. John is the last living of the twelve apostles here. And so he's pretty old. He is a seasoned saint in that sense. So I don't know exactly if he's referring just to his title, position, or his age, but more than likely it's both. He is an elderly elder and he introduces himself as the elder. And then it says that he's writing to the elect lady and her children. Now here's where a bit of the controversy arises as you're looking at different commentaries and trying to figure out exactly what does he mean. Is John writing to a literal lady and her children? Or is he writing to a figurative lady and her children? Those who lean towards it being literal, that he's writing to a literal lady, say that the word elect translates into a female name, Eclecta. That there was ladies whose name was Electa. Which in the Greek, the word elect is translated Eclectos, which means favorite, chosen, elect. But they also believe that it's quite possible if her name wasn't Electa, that it was lady, because that word lady also translates into a female name. And it's, it, it, phonetically, it's pronounced Kuria, Kuria. But it sounds more and looks more like Syria, C-Y-R-I-A. Be that as it may, <laughs> if that's the case... <laughs> Her name was either Syria or Electa, if if he's writing to someone in the literal sense. Now, those who lean towards it being figurative say that John is writing in code here. That he he, he is writing to the church in that region that he's writing to and to those who are in the church. That the lady would be considered the church as it's often the church is referred to as the bride of Christ and the people in it would be her children. 
And, and, and some believe that he's writing in code only because of the persecution that was underway in that region. And so he didn't want them to be in trouble or kind of, kind of just talking in code to where it, nobody else will understand it. I, I will tend to, and I tend to lean toward more the figurative, mainly because of how John closes off this letter in verse 13, where he says, The children and your, of your elect sister greets you, or greet you. If it were literal, John would more than likely would have said, Your sister and her children greet you. Unless they were fighting at the time and she didn't want to talk to her. And only the kids wanted to. Or maybe she was deceased already and it was her children. I don't know. But then he goes on, as he says, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Now, that would not be a typical kind of greeting in the literal sense if a male was writing to a female that he was not married to in that sense. Even amongst Christians, it, it, it wasn't a common way to greet one another that I love you in truth. Especially when the conclusion of this greeting says, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, and almost kind of talking in generality, that there's a lot of people who have known the truth, a lot of people love you. And so... Be that as it may, whether you want to look at it in the literal sense or you want to look at it in the figurative sense, the message of this short letter applies to whoever he was writing to back then. It applied to them. They understood it. And so it does to us today. And so we can look at it either way. You can figure it out yourself. Again, neither one of them is right or wrong in that sense. Because we weren't there, nor do we know exactly who he was writing to. But understand that as we're going through the epistles of John, we are still looking at the gospel according to love. And the theme of this short little letter that we'll spend this week and next week on is Christ's commandment. Christ's commandment, which still deals with the subject of love and loving one another. And for the most part, I will stick to the figurative sense more than the literal sense in our time in Second John, only because I want it to apply to all of us as a church. I want to make it applicable to all of us as we read through this part, those of us who are a part of the family of God. So then, the elder of John, the elder John, is telling the church and its people that he loves them in truth. But not only did he love them in truth, but also all the other brothers and sisters who have known the truth. And this word truth, it, it, it denotes what is true. It, 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 it references something that is undeniable. To, 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 to know the truth. There is no falsehood whatsoever. The truth does not differ and it doesn't waver and doesn't vary in any way this is what this word truth is the truth is the truth and that's the whole truth you don't have to worry about the truth it's the truth it doesn't change 
Now, some could translate this, and other translations do say, uh, whom I truly love. Which would mean that he, John, undeniably, without question, loved them. In other words, there was a merit, a value, a worth behind his love towards these people whom he is writing to because he's loving them with the love of God and with the truth of God. It is based on the truth of God that he loves them. It wasn't his own love, some kind of warm, fuzzy kind of feeling love that he had for the people. He genuinely loved them in Christ. And so to him, when he says, I love you, it was genuine because it was coming right from God's heart that was in his heart. He, he, he wasn't like feeling this warm and fuzzy kind of like, oh, I just love you, but I will continue to love you as long as you love me back. Because oftentimes that warm, fuzzy kind of love that we want to have for, for one another, it's like, yes, it's warm and fuzzy until you get the cold shoulder. And all of a sudden it's like, what the heck? And your feelings change for some people. But see, when you're loving with the love of God, see, the love of God doesn't change. Under any circumstance, under any condition, the love of God doesn't change. And so He is able to say, I love you in truth. I truly, truly do love you. John was among those who who have known the truth because the truth had presented itself to him in person. He saw the truth face to face. face. He heard the truth. He handled the truth. He was with the truth in Jesus. And the rest that he is talking about, they had come to know the truth through the person of Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. And so those who were also loving had the Holy Spirit in them and they were loving in truth as well. And he goes on to say that this love that is in truth in verse 2, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. You see, this truth that John is alluding to seems to be more than just an objective revelation from God the Father. So, some, some kind of purpose or, or, or idea or, or even a goal to, a, to try to, to, to attain or obtain. No, it, it was more of a, a subjective experience that we could have in our own personal lives. Because it wasn't something, or it was something that we could actually do. This truth was, was doable because this truth was attainable. It was within reach. And it was obtainable in that it could, you could grab a hold of it. Because this truth had staying power. This truth had lasting power. As it says in verse in verse 2, that, that it will abide with us and it will be with us forever. See, this truth was not just some goal, some, some abstract kind of thing that is like, man, I, I wish I could get it. It's like, no, this truth is attainable. You could grab it. It was something that could be so real in your life. 
It would stay with you forever. It would abide in you. You would be able to trust it because it wasn't going to leave. It had lasting power. You see, Jesus himself in John chapter 14 called himself the truth. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And when he says, I am the truth, he wasn't saying, I am a truth, one of many truths. He is saying, I am the truth. Where, 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 where truth comes from, I am the source. That's what he was saying. That's why that, that verse is so powerful in, in John chapter 14, verse 6. Because he is claiming something that nobody else can claim. He said, I am the source of all truth. And when I leave, he says, I will send you the spirit of truth. And he will be in you and he will dwell with you forever. There's lasting power. In John 1, 14, one of my favorite verses, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth is personified in Jesus. (laughs) He is truth. And He is attainable. And we can obtain Him, and we can grab hold of Him, and He could be in our lives. It's not something that's obscure. It's something that's that's objective way out there. It's it's some kind of a goal. No. No. It's subjective to where we could grab onto it and we can actually do it. This truth is not only something that we do and experience, but it's something or someone that lives and works in and through us. And in John's confidence, in his boldness, if you will, he says, and will be with us forever. Not, I hope He's with us forever. He will be with us forever. He was that confident. In verse 3, where He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth, and love. How did this church that he's writing to, how, how did this church and those who are in the church, how did they obtain or how did they come to know this truth? How did they become children of God? It is through the mercy, it is through the grace and the mercy of God. That's how we obtain it. The, the, the Bible tells us in Ephesians, I think it is, where it says God is rich in mercy. He has an abundance of grace. And He has channeled all that mercy and all that grace to us through Jesus Christ. But you see, we're not saved by God's love. Even though we're looking at His love and we're looking at His truth, we're not saved by His love and we're not saved by His truth. We're saved by God's grace. Grace is that love that pays the price. Grace is willing to, to, to give to somebody who does not deserve it. It's unmerited favor. 
And yet, it is grace that pays for the price of sin. And you see, God loved the whole world. We know that in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And even though God loves the whole world, the whole world is not saved. Because it's not the love of God that saves people, it's the grace of God that saves. And, it, and, and it's only those who receive it, who, 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 who accept it, His grace, that can experience His salvation. So when we receive the grace and mercy from God, then and only then can we truly have the peace of God flowing in our hearts. You see, we, you cannot have peace. You truly cannot have peace apart from God's grace and His mercy. There's no way. You cannot have peace with God. You cannot have this inner uh, harmony and tranquility with God unless you have already received the grace and mercy. So he couldn't have said, peace, mercy, and grace be with you. It, It had to go in this order. It's grace, mercy, peace will be with you. Again, that confidence that it will Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified, being declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is not the one that is at war with lost sinners. It's lost sinners who are at war with God. God has done everything possible to reconcile the sinner because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's how much He loves the world that He would send His Son to come and die. But see, that wasn't enough in that sense for everybody to be saved. You had to come through the grace. Oh, He made it possible. He he gave it all. He has done everything to reconcile sinners to Himself. But now it's in the, the sinner's court. The sinner has to make that move. The sinner must repent. He must turn to God and away from His life and say, I need you. (laughs) You see, and that love is already spread out saying, I've been waiting. We are reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ. It is, all, all of this is possible only in love and truth and love. After we receive the initial grace mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, truth and love will, will maintain, preserve, sustain all these things on a regular basis. You see, initially when we come to to Jesus and receive His grace and His mercy and have peace with God, it doesn't end there. Years later, you can continue to bask in that grace, in that mercy, because He shows it to us every day. Every day, we need His grace. Every day, we need His mercy. Every day, we need to be at peace with God. And we get to have that. And, 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 and it's peace, truth, and love that maintains that with us. And so John, again, in his confidence, uses the word will. He will be with you. He didn't say he may or hopefully he will be with you. 
And we should have that same confidence. You, you, you see, throughout the 60 years or so of, of John following Jesus, truth and love had maintained this grace and mercy and peace in his own life. And he understood that. And he knew that that same truth and love would do that in the lives of other people. He, he, he knew that. And see, sometimes when we come to Christ, we get on fire and we get excited. It's like, yes, God has, has saved me. I receive all these things. And a month later, a year later, ten years later, you're going, I don't know. I don't know about this whole thing. I don't know if I can still like receive this grace of God because I mess up so many times. It's like, man, the, you know, you, you, you begin to doubt and he's going, no, you will. You can. You will have this confidence or we can have this confidence that today you can experience the grace of God, the mercy of God, the peace of God, just as the day that you accepted Jesus. As a matter of fact, you should be even more thrilled because you, you should know it better. <laughs> I know when I got saved, I had no clue what that was, but I had a peace in my life. Man, I understand it way better now. So for all these years, he knew that. John knew that, and as he writes it with boldness and confidence, he said, he will be with you. Truth and, and, and love will maintain this in your life. And note also in that verse, in verse 3, where these blessings come from, where they stem from, both the Father and the Son, which affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. And it's important because in verse 9, he, as we'll see next week, he, 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 he's, he's talking about those who, who would come and not preach that same doctrine. And so he wants to make sure that this blessing that you're receiving, this grace, mercy, and truth is not only in Jesus Christ, but it comes from God the Father. And if, there's a, and if God's a father, then he must have a son, and that son is Jesus Christ. And we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe in the doctrine of, of Christ, that he came in the flesh. And there would be those who tried to deny it. And so we'll touch on that next week. But verse 4 through 6 here, he says, I greatly rejoice that I have found some of your children walking in truth, as we have received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I write a new commandment to you, but that which we have, from, have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard, from the beginning, you should walk in it. Almost sounds similar to what we've covered in First John. He said, I'm not writing you something new. It's been from the beginning, from, from when Jesus came on the scene, we, he be, he's been preaching love, he's been preaching loving one another. And, and his encouragement is that you should continue. But John seems to be encouraged to know that some from the church that he was writing to, were walking in truth and in love. That's the, gist, uh, the, the essence of these verses. He is thrilled, he is stoked that there are some who are walking in truth. Now that's not to say that most of them were not, 
but that the ones that he had come across with, those who, who he heard about were walking in truth and walking in love. They were c- continuing to keep the commandments that they had, been, that they had received. And he, re- he, he, he greatly rejoiced over that. Turn over one page to, to John, uh, 3 John, verses 3 and 4. He says something similar here. He says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I have no greater joy than my children walk in truth. He, he was rejoicing. And, and I love the fact that John, he chose to, to focus on this, on this positive aspect. Those who were walking in the truth. Again, I'm sure there were some that, were, that weren't walking the way they should be walking. But I love the fact that he doesn't focus on that negative part of it. Because it's so easy to do, isn't it? I think so often, even as a pastor, we, we, we can look and say, Man, where is everybody? And yet you're all sitting here. And you're going, what am I, chopped liver? I know, but look at all the empty seats. And it's like, you can't focus on that. You can't preach to the empty seats. <laughs> you can't. And see, he, he, Paul or John could have been, been so discouraged, he could have wrote and said, you know, I'm a little excited here that only some of you are walking in truth. He's going, no, I greatly rejoice that some of you are walking in the truth. It's exciting when, when, when you have somebody that is walking in the truth and you're excited for them instead of going, ah, it'll wear out. Because we can be so negative in a lot of ways, can't we? I know I can. <laughs> somebody does well, yeah, you got lucky. <laughs> it's like, no, oh, man, come on, build them up. See, an excited Christian is like, yeah, give it a year or so, man. You'll be as boring as I am. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> he should be more excited because you should know more by now. Doggone it. No, his plea to them, as he says in verse 5, that they would continue that they would continue to walk in truth and in love in the commandments that they had been given, that they would continue to do that. He says, man, I greatly rejoice. I'm excited that some of you are walking just the way you've been commanded by the Father. Man, you're, you're doing it. And his plea to them, he's his, his saying, hey, don't veer off of that. He's not saying, yeah, pretty soon it'll die out in your life. No, he was just as excited. Sixty years later, in Christ, he was just as excited. And he didn't want them to veer off that path, nor did he want them to become unbalanced when it comes to truth and love. This encouragement to continue to walk in truth and love was essential. It was vital for them, and it is as vital for us today that we continue to walk in truth and love. Because of the warning that we will look at next week, it's important for us to understand how, how, how 
How vital it is for us to walk in truth and in love. You see, without truth and love flowing in our lives constantly and continually, we can be easily deceived and we are vulnerable to, to, to compromise. When it's not flowing in our hearts and in our lives. John wanted his readers to make sure that their love was governed by truth. That their love was governed by truth. Otherwise, it would cease to be love. You see, genuine love does not compromise the truth. It can't compromise the truth. And when we become unbalanced, when in the name of love we don't speak the truth, we allow sin and deceit to permeate our lives and the life of the church. There has to be a balance. On the other hand, when we become unbalanced, when in the name of truth, we don't speak in love, then we push people away because of the the truth of the gospel. We push them away and, and, and then the truth becomes unattractive. If truth and love are not cohabitating together, Working together. It's interesting because Paul said in John in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13 that without love we just become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. So what if you do all these things, but if you don't have love, what good is it? You can speak the truth, and if you don't do it in love, you're just going to knock people over and mow them over and push them off to the side, and people are going, I don't know if I want that gospel. There has to be love associated with truth, just like there has to be truth associated with love. Walking here is the key. Walking in the truth and in love. We are to speak the truth in love, it tells us in Ephesians. We are to continue to walk in that truth and love. And then we will have that balance that we need continually if we're walking in truth and in love. Walking is the key to all of this. Because it speaks of a forward motion. It speaks of of gaining ground as you walk, not standing still. As we walk in the name of love, we will speak the truth. And as we walk in the name of truth, we will speak love. They will go hand in hand if you're being balanced with the Word of God. I want to leave you with a question as we close off here and we enter into a time of communion. If you are a part of the body of Christ, if you are a believer, just ponder this question. You can do whatever you want with it, but ponder it as as we're going to take communion. Are others within the body of Christ greatly rejoicing that you are walking in truth and love? Are others greatly rejoicing that you are walking in truth and love. The exhortation at the end of verse 6 says, you should walk in it. (laughs) 
You should. You should walk in this. It, it, it would do you well to walk in truth and love. And if you are walking in truth and love, my encouragement is continue in it every day. Every day continue to walk in that truth and in that love because it will give you that balance that you need day in and day out in your practical life. For those of you who, who are here this morning who may not be a part of the body of Christ, you're, you, you, you know that. You're not a believer. You don't call yourself a Christian. You know that. And you were invited or you came. I would bet that those who invited you to come or those who may know you are here today, I would bet that there are a lot of people who would greatly rejoice over you to hear that you are now walking in truth and love. Man, they would be excited that if you left here and you called somebody, your mom or whoever has been praying for you or bugging you about Jesus, that you call and say, guess what? I accepted Jesus today. Unless they're so down, they'll probably go, it won't last. <laughs> Whatever. I could guarantee you. If they could make backflips, they would make backflips, man. They would greatly rejoice that today was the day of your salvation. And I want to give you that opportunity because we're going to take communion in a little bit. We're going to have some, some worship. You're going to be able to come up at, at, at your leisure within those, what are the two songs? <laughs> but you get to, to just ponder who Jesus is before you come up. And if you're here this morning and you are a believer, man, and, and, and there's things in your life that you need to get right, just get it right before you come up and, and you remember all that Jesus did for you. As we start off this new year that you're going, you know what, Lord? There's so many things. I don't want a resolution, Lord. I want reconciliation with you, man. I, I want to be so close, so tight with you. And it's not a resolution. It's for real. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning before you come up and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to have communion with you. I mean, you can have it by yourself. You can come and, and share it with your friends and family. If you want to go grab your kids and have communion with them, do that too. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're probably going, I don't know what communion is. Or you've heard about it. But you know what? For you, if you don't understand what it is, it's just a little piece of cracker that won't fill you up for sure. <laughs> and some grape juice. That's it. It will mean nothing to you. But those who, who know what it signifies. It signifies the blood. It signifies the body that was broken for you because He loved you so much. And He loved you so much and you still have not received Him. Receive Him today. I'm going to pray in a little bit as the worship team comes up. And I want to give you that opportunity. And I know some of you is like, Pastor Zeke, you do that every week, man. It's the same people who raise their hand. I don't care. I will continue to give out that, that opportunity because if you're here today, today is the day of your salvation. And God wants to save you. He wants to give you eternal life. He will be with you. He, wa he, he wants to give you the, the grace, the mercy, and the peace that you've been longing for. It's not some hard sale. <laughs> I just know it's true. <laughs> because it's been with me for all these years. And it will continue. And I know that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you and praise you for this morning, Lord. We are honored to be able, Lord God, to spend this time with you. To be able to, to just remember all the work 
that you've done on our behalf so that we can have salvation with you. God, I thank you that you sent your son in the flesh. I thank you, Lord, that Jesus left his throne in heaven, put on humanity, at the same time being all God, so that he can come as a perfect sacrifice and die for our sins. Lord, I I want my brothers and sisters to be able to remember all that you've done for them, Lord, and that they would greatly rejoice themselves for the work that you've done in their life, Lord. And as they remember the broken body and the blood, that once again they will commune with you. But Lord, there's, there's some in this room this morning. Maybe they've heard about you, Lord. Maybe as a kid they accepted you, but they know they haven't been walking with you. I pray that this morning, Lord God, they would surrender everything they have and truly turn their lives over to you, Lord. That they would repent of their sin. (laughs) Ask that you would change them from within so that they might experience the grace, the mercy, the peace that would be able to understand what the truth is and the love. If that's you this morning, you need Jesus in your life. (laughs) You need to be able to just humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm sorry. So that when you come up here, you can gather the the cracker and the juice and it, it will mean something way more than it would have before that. And so, is there anyone this morning raise your hand so I can pray for you you can say I, I need Jesus I want I want to be new amen I see your hand back there bless you Lord's bringing people into his kingdom <laughs> there's people that are greatly rejoicing I know in heaven they're rejoicing over one is there any more <laughs> they're saying man I've been coming for a while I don't think I've ever really given my life to, to Jesus Father, I pray right now for that person in the back back there. Lord, they raise their hand in faith. I pray that even right now, they would be talking with you, asking for forgiveness. That you would be filling them with your Holy Spirit, Lord. That even though they might not comprehend all these things, they may experience your peace. Please, Lord minister to their hearts make them that new person be with them always Lord God as your word promises blessed be your name thank you for bringing one more into the kingdom bless you in Jesus name Amen